first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Friendship with God. Curtis. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today on another Sabbath day, the Sabbath before we enter into this next Passover season. Before I start, though, I would like to just kind of extend my appreciation for your prayers for my wife, Katie, and uh, the knee injury that she sustained. Uh, she hasn't gotten 100% answers yet. She has to go on the doctor on Monday to see what the plan of action is. She does know that she does have some uh, meniscus tear. Uh, she doesn't have any ligament damage, it doesn't look like. Uh, but she does have some other things that I'm not quite familiar with, and of course we'll get more information on Monday. So we're hoping uh, that she doesn't have, there's no requirement for surgery. Uh, maybe she can do some physical therapy, and then with, or by the grace of God and by God's healing power, that she can be back up and running uh, pretty soon. She's able to walk. Uh, she's still working. She's on desk duty. She's a nurse, so she works 12-hour shifts, so it's very difficult. Uh, but she's surviving, even though she's in quite a bit of pain. But... Uh, she's had two kids, so she's pretty tough, and uh, as you can imagine, you ladies all know, we don't know men, uh, but we can imagine. My sermon today uh, is entitled, Friends with God, or Friendship with God, rather, and this sermon I actually started preparing uh, about a month ago, because on the 28th of February, I was supposed to give the message that day, and we got snowed out. And this week I was going back to that message and I was trying to think, you know, if I wanted to proceed in giving kind of the message I was getting ready to give on February the 28th or if I wanted to do something new. But my main focus, because what today is, this last Sabbath before we enter into that Passover season, I really wanted to leave here today giving us something that we could take a hold of, that we could reflect upon in our uh, spiritual walk with God, of course, we always want to do that, but especially this time of year to reflect on that relationship that we have entered into. The text that we're going to look at today is found in James, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 10. Now, I'm primarily going to focus on verses 4 through 10, but we're going to go ahead and read 1 through 10 just real quick, just so we can kind of get an understanding of where James's thought is in this portion of his letter. So verse 1 of chapter 4 of the epistle of James, it says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace, and therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Or rather, it's, I should have said, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. And so I wanted to start today, as you can see in this string of passages that James brings out, he talks about friendship. And he talks about friendship in a very specific way. As we are here today, just a few days removed from this renewal of the contract, of that covenant that we have entered into with God, I have a couple of things I want to bring out, a couple of points. One of them is just what James has to say about having friendship with the world. Choose friendship with God over friendship with the world. Let's talk a little bit about why James says this. He gives us two reasons. The first reason he tells us to choose friendship with God over friendship with the world is because friendship with the world makes us adulterers. It's interesting that this language that James is using, we know that the epistle to James, of James is sent out, it, it's, you know, it's uh, titled to you know, the lost 12 tribes of Israel. We know it's very Jewish in nature as far as understanding that the audience that James is speaking to, they're going to understand things from a very typical first century Jewish mindset. So a lot of the language that's used here is rooted in what a lot of scholars have come to see as wisdom poetry of the Old Testament. And some people even call this the New Testament wisdom literature, if you were to say there was a, such a genre. But the language that he uses, the Greek word is actually you adulteresses. Most English versions say you adulterers and adulteresses. It's kind of trying to include both male and female. But we do know that the language that James is using here is very specific. And it's going back to those Old Testament prophets, which so often liken the relationship that God was in with Israel as this contractual marriage, that the husband of the Lord or the, the Lord is the husband and then Israel is that wife. And we so often see Israel being called by the prophets of the Old Testament adulteresses. Because while they were in contract, in marriage, to the Lord God Almighty, they were simultaneously and actively engaging in pursuing the idols of the Canaanites. Which brings us to another idea. The idea of friendship itself. I mean, we know what friendship is. We, you know, obviously know that friendship is a very good thing. But what does friendship mean in this context? How would someone living in this day and age, receiving a letter from James, understand what James is trying to say? And the reason for that is, is because although we do here in the 21st century, living in the West, do have a concept of friendship, it's not 100% equivalent to the concept of friendship in this day and age. In antiquity, in this period of time, the concept of friendship was usually taken to mean something a little bit more indifferent, a little bit more different than what we consider it today, a little bit more intense. In this age, it was described as a lifelong pact with people with shared values and loyalties. In essence, being a friend with someone or something meant lining up and calibrating oneself with that person or entity in thinking, values, beliefs and longings. We do know that the Near East today and in ancient times take some of these common things that we have in our lives today here in the West and they're a lot different. They have a lot more deeper meaning to them. Uh, about a few months ago I gave a message about dining with tax collectors and the significance it would be to actually sit down and eat a meal with somebody. 
literally what that relationship, it, it, it kind of brings out the similar context here, the similar idea here of friendship in the ancient Middle East. Having friendship with the world didn't just mean being friends with people that might not be believers in God, but literally actively pursuing and engaging and going after the same values of people that might be living in sinful lifestyles. Engaging and longing after the value system of the world is the idea that's bring out or brought out here. And we know that the same language is used in the New Testament talking about the church and the church having a feminine role to the husbandman of Jesus Christ. The term world here is a very common term. You know, we have many passages in the New Testament that tell us about this word cosmos, which is what the Greek is. We know that this same term is used in the epistle of John, 1 John 2.15, talking about love of the world being opposed to love of God. We know that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.4, talked and described the idea of the world as a system of evil that's controlled by Satan, including all that is opposed to God on earth. We know that Jesus in Matthew, the 6th chapter, verse 24, speaking of the love, over, the love of things over the love of God, he tells us that it's impossible to serve two masters because you will hate one and love the other. And essentially, you will have master will hold one primary affection of the subject over the others. We know that there's a lot that's talked about in the Bible about this idea. Which brings us to the idea here about friendship with the world and trying to maintain a friendship with God. James later talks about the idea of a person being double-minded. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But essentially someone who's trying to maintain a double allegiance. An allegiance to the world or one foot in the world and one foot on or focused on God. So therefore when we look at this we see these things. We know that even flirting with the world or flirtation with the world or any kind of friendship or to choose friendship with the world is to commit adultery with this world over and against God himself. If we are friends with this world, brethren, we are committing spiritual infidelity against God. And the reason I liked to pick this passage and I went with it was because I thought that when we think about our relationship with God and that covenant, it's like a marriage. It's a contract between him and us, and he requires a complete singleness of mind. Just a quick illustration real quick. To be an adulterer, one must be in a present covenant or contract. In other words, when we use the term today to refer to the act of adultery, we usually we speak of terms of someone who is either committing adultery on their husband or their wife. Literally, someone who is already in a present uh, situation or a present contract. In the same way, James is using the term adulterer because he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to people who have entered into a relationship with God. Now, there's other terms, obviously, that we use to describe people who are engaging in immorality with, you know, maybe sexually or other ways or relationship-wise. We don't use the word adultery because we usually uh, limit that word to describe someone who is in a previous relationship or a current relationship with something or someone committing adultery whenever they step outside of that relationship and transgress that. So essentially James is using the term adultery because he's speaking to individuals who have come into a covenant with God and are flirting with another God or a deity. And in this case we know that this flirtation is with the deity of this world or the internal world of ourselves where we allow our passions to reign over us. 
I want to give another illustration, and this one's more specifically to maybe some things that we can kind of relate to, and I know some people in our audience with the hopes here, they've done a lot of studying on marriage and marriage counseling and things of that nature, but uh, there's been a lot made of both in our country, and I'm sure in the world, and by state, the statistics, the percentages of divorce rates and failed marriages. And I think if, you're any if you have any familiarity with some of these statistics, they are very alarming. They're very, very alarming. About a month ago, I stumbled across an article that was entitled, Why Women Leave the Men They Love. And I later saw that this same article, there was a uh, kind of a part two that talked about, you know, why men leave the women they love. But anyways... This article was very interesting, and it kind of caught my eye whenever I was just kind of browsing on the internet, and I just somehow stumbled across it. And when I was giving this message, I couldn't help but think back to it, because this article, it described an infidelity, it described a love affair, it described an adultery that took place between a spouse, or does, it was, essentially it was a counselor, a marriage counselor, that was basically taking all of this, his, his experience and saying all of these common things that he just has seen over the years and these common elements. And he talked about a specific type of infidelity. And it wasn't physical. It wasn't the infidelity where the spouse or the, the husband was actually engaging in some sort of extramarital affair physically with another person. But rather, it was talking about the spouse who was having an affair with the golf course, who was having an affair with their work or their hobbies. The spouse whose focus was on everything but their significant other. The spouse who was physically there but emotionally and mentally absent because their affection and heart were on other things. And as I was looking at this, and I was looking at what James had to say about friendship with the world and, and adultery, I could not help but to think back to this article and think about our relationship with God. Because I think sometimes, you know, when we live in this world and we, we hear about adultery, but a lot of us, it doesn't make sense, you know, unless you're maybe experiencing that situation. You're out on the golf course all the time and you're neglecting your wife or you're neglecting your husband with your work or whatever it may be. That doesn't seem like adultery. But there's kind of an emotional adultery going there. There's a mental adultery going on there because you are giving your devotion to something or something else, a hobby or whatever it is, over your significant other. And so what this article was bringing out essentially was is that because we live in such a physical world, we think that all of those things are just innocent. They're not harmful, but they can be just as fatal to a marriage than actually physical infidelity. Of course, I'm sure the ramifications are different. I'm sure that maybe uh, there's a little bit easier way to navigate through uh, a reconciliation whenever it's a, a non-person affair. But I was starting to think about us as Christians and us in our contract with God and thinking about, I think it's a naive misconception to think that, you know, some of us may feel like this, maybe we haven't really thought about it completely, but to think that the only way we can be, you know, breaking covenant with God or committing adultery on God is if we were actually literally worshiping another deity. And we think of terms of maybe if we were, you know, worshiping an idol or something like that, because that's so much of the language that's brought out in the Bible. And I started thinking about, you know what, there's a lot of deities in this world, and they're not from the Greek pantheon. They're not from ancient Canaan. They're not, you know, from, you know, actual official deities that we see in different religions. But there's all kind of deities that 
replaces our allegiance with God, replaces our focus on God, replaces our devotion to you know, looking to God for everything that we need. I think those are the main idols, and that's the main uh, you know, danger that we can get into, I think. It's having that misconception about us, the thinking that unless we do this, we're not engaging in idolatry. Unless we do this, we're not engaging in any sort of you know, extra you know, contractual affair against God. When in fact, I think we can be. Absolutely. So that's the reason that James tells us not to have friendship with the world. Because it makes us adulterers. And as we go into this Passover season, we know that we are in a present contract covenant with the God. But he also tells us not to have friendship with the world because it makes us enemies of God. So we're not just adulterers, but we actually become enemies of God when we engage in friendship with the world. Let's just think back to ancient Israel. You know, we have so many examples in the books of the Old Testament looking to ancient Israel and how much they went astray. And we see that many of the Old Testament prophets continually warned ancient Israel of the, 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 the God's righteous judgment was going to come upon them. And in fact, it even led to, eventually, captivity to the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire in the north. We know that the passages that are brought out in the books of Isaiah and the books of Jeremiah and all the other texts that we can look at and the, the, the call to come back, to commit back to the Lord, the language used of infidelity, spiritual infidelity. We can look at the book of Hosea and see so many different pictures and so many different analogies given there. One of the things we do know, though, is, is that it's always to bring them back. There's always the hope that this is to bring them back into a relationship with God. You know, Daniel, the seventh chapter, talks about the four beasts. And a lot of us have studied this, and there's a lot of uh, different historical uh, things that we can look into to understand better the context of what's being described in Daniel, the seventh. But the four beast powers, and many people have, you know, historically grounded these four beasts in four big-time historical empires that have been in world history. But one of the things that we do know about this is that all of these beasts, a culmination of them, it's kind of a, an example, we can look at the book of Revelation, that they, they epitomize that world system. And we know the end game, the end result is that there's this new kingdom that comes out of the sky and destroys those kingdoms, those kingdoms that have set themselves up and have a, a system that's completely opposed to God. What's interesting is this, is that all those who align with that beast, with that power, with that world system, in the process of you know, being aligned with that beast is destroyed with the beast. And so in a nutshell, when we look at it, we can see that this world is going this way and we can look at the biblical message and the biblical testimony and we see that this world is in opposition to God, the world system, the attitudes, the mindsets, the, the things that people try to say is okay and it's not a big deal. It's, a, and it's, it's in opposition to God. And aligning ourselves with that system, knowing that at some point in time it will be destroyed by God and be put down, we have to understand that along with that world system are all those who align themselves with it. And of course, I'm not getting into eternal destiny and things like that. I'm not getting into and saying that people who are misguided and don't have an understanding to the truth are not going to have a chance. But we do know that there is a physical judgment that's coming upon this earth. And some people will suffer consequences even if later there's another opportunity for them to come to understand the truth. We know that there's a physical judgment coming to this world 
and the put down of the world rule and the, the rule of Satan on this earth. And we also know that there's a future ultimate spiritual recommend, uh, judgment day that's coming. All of this is in the context of James's letter, obviously. And if you read the book of James, and many of us have, I'm, I'm someone that has become very fond of the book of James, we see a lot of these worldly traits are starting to be characterized, obviously, among some of the people that James has in mind when he's writing. We see that a lot of worldly behavior, at least in part, because we see, we see discussion about discrimination against people. We see a lot of discrimination in our country and in the world. Racial discrimination, of course, is probably one of the biggest uh, discrimination, uh, there's other discriminations, of course, sometimes there's discrimination that's, you know, I don't think it's proper to accuse someone of discrimination, but there's discrimination against people who might have some sort of handicap, a discrimination against people that might not be up to a social economic status uh, that's the most high. There's a lot of discrimination, and we know that in the book of James, there was obviously discrimination that was going on in the church. We also know that people were speaking negatively about people. There was gossip going on. We know that there was people, we look at the present text, verse 1 that we read, we talked about where do the fightings and quarrels come from. They come from your evil desires, the passions that you have within you that are obviously not aligned to God's will. All of these behaviors demonstrated a rival allegiance to God, one that sought the carnal will over God's will. And so I ask, as this past season Passover season comes around again, what about the context of our life? What I love about the Passover season is many things, but I think more than anything is that God has given us a chance for renewal every year. We're physical people. We are a physical people, and because we're physical people, we are subject to a lot of, you know, obvious uh, things that are, are not perfect like our memory. We forget. We get wrapped up in other things and we become forgetful. And so just looking at the landscape of human nature and how forgetful we are, it's obvious that these holy days, these feast days, are not just important because it lets us know what God's doing, it lets us know the salvation process, but it also lets us remember to never forget be able to continue to keep focused on the covenant that we have come into with God. So in the context of our lives today, what about our tendencies to try to be friends with the world? How are our actions, how are our attitudes, what about our thoughts? Are they befitting of our calling? What consumes us that's in opposition to God? After James brings this about, he gives us a list of resources, which is my second main point today. Use the resources available to us. Verse 7 through 10, I'm going to read that again of James, the fourth chapter. It says, therefore, submit. Because I've told you all these things, you're adulterers, when you, you know, whenever you are uh, fighting and quarreling, and, and it's a result of you going after your passions, your passions that are untamed, your passions that are not focused on the, the will of God. After I've given you these things and I've given you a reality check, you are engaging in these things, and not just you, people in the world, but you who have come into a relationship, a covenant relationship with Christ. He says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I think the key ingredient here is humility. The passage before this in, in verse 6 says, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is actually a quote from Proverbs, the third chapter, verse 34. You know, the humble within the Bible is often associated with the poor. If you look at it many times, people are either economically poor or they're poor in spirit. That's usually a characteristic that's associated with the humble. Those who are forced to rely on God because in their situation there is no other choice. You know, there's a lot of talk about how we are supposed to replicate our faith, our trust in God like a little child. Just as a little child has a complete reliance and a complete trust on God, we too are supposed to, I think, replicate someone who's poor. I'm not necessarily saying financially poor. I'm not necessarily saying uh, someone that we think is homeless or something like that, but someone who is poor in the sense that they have come to realize how absolutely bankrupt they are by themselves apart from God. When you come to that situation, when you come to the realization that you have no resource to offer on your own, that nothing can sustain us but God, it forces us to want to do what's in the next part, which is submission, the resource of submission. We want to submit, and this is an act of humility, and this is the second part. The act of humility, because James says that not only we're supposed to be humble, because that's kind of the linchpin, so to speak, of enabling us to engage in these other resources. He says, submit to God and flee from the devil. Submission entails placing ourselves under the lordship of God, accepting his authority over our lives. And we know at the heart of this is humility. Because to submit actually means, literally, if we think about it, to humble ourselves. Swallow our pride and submit to God. Place God's desires above our own by adopting his will. The idea in mind is submission to God's will over our own, which is in line what is inspired by this entire string of passages. Because see, what seemed to be going on was that James was dealing with at least some people, maybe not all, who were engaged in running after all of their own passions. That were focused solely on just trying to get what they want. To the point that it often led to strife and fighting among each other. It's interesting also that the Greek word submit and resist, it talks about, it's a word that suggests to put in proper order or to put an order under and it's suggesting it's a suggestive term that's used in talking about marriage and other things like that authority and, and governments and I think that James is trying to bring out that we need to restore the proper order of authority in our lives we need to forsake the natural order of not allowing God to properly reign over our lives but rather our passions the world and flirtation with the worldly system. Submission also includes resisting, opposing the devil. And we can consider Jesus in his days in the wilderness and resisting Satan the devil. One thing we have to remember, though, it wasn't a final thing. 
It wasn't a final resistance, but it was a continual resistance. That was just one snippet, one short 40 days, if you look at the process of Jesus' entire life, that he must have been dealing on a daily, hourly, minute basis, having to deal with Satan the devil. Submission includes resisting. The same word that's used, resist, the same Greek word, is also used when translating that Proverbs passage about how God resists the proud. I think that what James is saying and trying to use, and if we think about it, is that those who have a characteristic of God naturally is going to resist something that is in complete opposition. If we are developing God's characteristics with God's spirit, then we have no other choice but to naturally want to resist the devil. And it starts with humility and it starts with submission. On the same way, the proud, the idea of being prideful, it is in opposition to the nature of God. So it's only natural and in God's nature to resist those who have a prideful attitude. Submission also includes resistance. At the heart of Satan's agenda lies his desire to get us to doubt, to deny, to disregard, and ultimately disobey God's word. And I think the most dangerous thing about this is the fact that we can look at the biblical evidence and we seem to see that this is usually done without people even knowing it. The most dangerous sin is the sin that you're committing you don't even know you're committing. The sin that you have become so untuned to what the things of God are, the characteristics of God, and your relationship with God, that you are not even aware that you are actually engaging in sin. You're not aware that you're not following God anymore, but you're following the world. Or you're following, you know, obviously in a nutshell, ultimately Satan because he's the God of this world. That's the most dangerous sin, in my opinion. So what does resisting look like? Well, first of all, in a very practical sense, I think that resistance goes back to that submission. You have to submit to God in order to completely and continually be trying to build up your spiritual life so you will be prepared. You do not live on Mars. You live on planet Earth. You live on the world. You are, unless you are in a situation where you can, I do not recommend it, I don't think it's healthy, you are not able to go out and be free of people in the world. You have to be a normal person, someone living in this world that's going to pass by, that's sometimes going to be in situations that are not godly. When we can, we should remove ourselves from those situations. But when we can't, which is going to be the case, as most of us know, living in this world, there's going to be times where we are in a situation where we can't remove ourselves. We need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. And being prepared starts with working on that relationship with God. The next resource is the resource of clinging to God. While we resist temptation, we must cling to God, which is a natural response to the realization of how much we rely and depend on God after we have humbled ourselves and submit ourselves to his rule, authority, and will. It's a natural response. If we have come to the conclusion, if we have come to that point where we realize who we are and what nothingness we are without God, the natural response should be clinginess. We should cling to God. The language is interesting that's used here because James says to cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. And obviously this is a temple or a priestly terminology that James is using. He would remind his readers of the ceremonies that took place in the temple, the ceremonies that the priest would have went through. 
The addition of the term, you double-minded, also adds some significance because we know that purity, the idea of purity, when we clean something, whether it be clothes, we look at something being pure, we look at it being one color, one element. Something that's not pure is going to be a mixture of things. Something like, you know, a white t-shirt with dirt on it or some stain on it. Not a tainted mixture of elements. We must purify the mixture of motives and allegiances we may have. To humbly submit to God means to make ourselves a, of a single mind. We must cleanse our hands, which signify our actions. And we also must purify our hearts, which signifies our thoughts, our desires, and our focuses, that may demonstrate any two natures we may have. Like the psalm says in 24, verse 3 and 4, it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has, a clean, who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So we know that going into covenant with God means that we have to purify ourselves. We have to wash away any of the mixed elements that we have, any of the double-mindedness that we have engaged in. The last resource I'm going to bring out is the resource of mourning. Obviously, mourning is the proper response to our realization of our sin. Mourning is the sign of repentance, as Psalm 51, 17 says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, and these, O God, you will not despise. Like those in James' audience, people who are aligned with the world and the attitudes of the world probably did so with the errant thinking that their path would bring them their heart's desire, never realizing the path would bring them the exact opposite and was a dead end to the destruction and was opposed to God, this is something that should truly make us mournful. It should truly make us foolish feeling when we think that something is of God and we realize that we are actually working against God. The proper response is repentance. The proper is response is repentance. I want to just kind of really quickly just think back to a story in ancient Israel. Before the monarchy, before there was a king, uh, whenever the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. And we read that story before. We know that what was going on with the priests and with what's, what's going on with Samuel. But the interesting thing about that story is this. The Philistines steal the prophet away. We know there was corruption going on among the priesthood of Israel. One of the things that happens at the very end, not until the end, but at the very end, because everything continued to fail. The priests, they thought, oh, all we got to do is bring out the Ark of the Covenant and we'll win. At the very end of this event, finally, when they received that Ark of the Covenant back, in 1 Samuel 7, verse 3 and 4, it says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bells and the asterisks, and serve the Lord only. What's interesting about this is, is this. Before this took place, before all of these things, there was no mention of repentance among Israel for their idolatry. There's no mention of seeking God in prayer. In fact, what we find is at the end of the story, this whole time they were engaged in a polytheistic mindset, and they still could not figure out why they were not being successful in trying to retrieve back the Ark of the Covenant. Probably a lot of them felt very foolish. Some of them obviously understood what was going on. 
But I think a lot of them had become so spiritually bankrupt that maybe they didn't understand that what they were engaging in was adultery against God and that this was at the heart of the problem and why they were continually failing about trying to restore themselves. They were mixing the worship of God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the pagan idols of the land of Canaan. So, in conclusion... The last thing that James tells us in this string of passages is to humble ourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Being humble before God Almighty, I think, is the linchpin of all of this. The linchpin of what this message is all about, which is friendship with God. Obviously, we know that God has many titles in our lives. He's our Father. He's our Creator. We know that Jesus Christ is our elder brother, side by side on God's right hand. And we do know that there's not a lot of times in the Bible that certain individuals are called friends with God. But the ones who are are the ones who have a characteristic that's very, very in common with each other. And that is humility. Humility. As we go into this next Passover season, I ask us to reflect on these things. Let us focus on the ideas set forth by James about our covenants. Realizing that it's not just doing things that we're not supposed to be doing, but because we're in a present relationship with God, anytime we flirt with the world, anytime we flirt with things, anytime that something takes our devotion away from God, what that means is we are committing adultery. And in turn, and in contrary to this, let us seek friendship with God.